0: A lot of people know the backstory to the hymn Amazing Grace. It was written in 1779 by John Newton. But the prequel, the prequel is just as sad. John had been the only child of a sea captain and a church-going woman, and his mother taught him to read the Bible and to worship in church. But he was only seven years old when she died. And when his father remarried, hard times fell on little John, and he became kind of a troublemaker. As a young man, he fell in love with a young woman named Mary. And when he was 19 and traveling to go see her, he fell victim to a press gang. And the press gang forced him onto a ship where he had to serve under very harsh conditions. And when he tried and failed to escape, the sea captain had him stripped and whipped. He became involved in the brutal 18th century slave trade and he was famous for his wild behavior, but also for mocking God. And he was so miserable to be around that his own crew on a slave trip abandoned him in Africa to another slave trader who turned around and enslaved him and he lived under extremely harsh conditions for the next three years in slavery. Finally, another ship rescued him, but it It wasn't until that ship itself was cracking up and just about to sink in the middle of a horrifying storm that it dawned on him this had become a metaphor for the shipwreck of his own life. He knew that he was going to die that night and he cried out to God for the first time in many years. He knew he was going to die but he didn't know what that death would bring. So let's bring that story into this week's text as we look at Jesus on the cross. Should we briefly introduce ourselves? Oh, all our right, that Mari,
1: that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? I'm Mari Hagemeyer. I'm Joanne's daughter. Yes,
0: Hi, <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> and I'm Joanne Hagemeyer, a member of the teaching team, and we're going to team teach this morning right. for something new and wonderful. All right. exciting. So let's read in the text. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, where they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. It was a horrific scene, and it must have made little sense to the disciples, especially against the backdrop of the prayer Jesus had prayed just hours before, the night before. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Where was that glory now? All but one of his disciples had fled. In fact, out of the 120 close followers and supporters of Jesus, only four were left now at the foot of his cross. Uh, the other gospels describe how John and James had asked actually for the exalted positions beside Jesus. They'd said, James and John, the sons of Zebedee came forward to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And I wonder, as John looked up at Jesus, crucified between two thieves, I wonder what he thought as he saw to whom it had been given to be at Jesus' right and left as he was glorified. So let's continue in the passage.
1: Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man said I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So as John is pulling back from what's happening in Jesus' immediate vicinity, he begins to show us how an event that felt senseless and hopeless at this time, was actually serving a greater purpose. So we leave Jesus and the execution scene for a moment, and we witness an exchange between Pilate and the chief priests, who seem frustrated, although they've finally gotten their way. We heard in Steve's message last week that Pilate was pretty much bullied into ordering Jesus' execution. After hearing what he had to say, the official, who was known at the time for his adherence to Rome and his distaste for Jewish politics, pilate believed that jesus was innocent he may have been forced to execute him oh anyway to appease both the high priests and his own superiors but the way that pilate carried out those orders shows that jesus had made a strong impact on him and john tells us that jesus was executed in a place called golgotha which was near enough to the city that people could read the sign that Pilate affixed to the cross. So the name Golgotha, as well as its name in Greek, mean the skull or the cranium, the top part of the head. Uh, But that name is really enigmatic. And even as early as the second century, scholars couldn't agree why the place had that name or even where it really was. But we need to remember that although knowing that information would be interesting, it's not actually important uh, because John isn't including this information just so we can go on a field trip, right? He's got a purpose here. First, John is letting us know that this event was public. Pilate made a sign, one that affirmed Jesus's words and not the high priests and in all the languages that were commonly read in the area. So if you could read at all, you could read that sign. And anyone could come close enough to do that because it's accessible from the city. They don't have to travel a long ways. And second of all, John is showing us how the event fulfilled prophecy. So, in this particular, in this whole passage, he references two Psalms, which is Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. Uh, and although in this particular set of verses he doesn't mention them, we know that by comparing this passage with the Gospel of Mark, which at the time had already been written and was widely distributed, uh, so John definitely had it in front of him to be able to compare, that many lines from those two Psalms were fulfilled as prophecies during Jesus' crucifixion. Here are a few. It says, All who see me mock at me, they make mouths at me, they shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord, let him deliver, let him rescue the one in whom he delights. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Many are those who would destroy me, my enemies accuse me falsely. What I did not steal must I now restore. And I am the subject of gossip for those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So, through this, John is showing us that although the appearances seem pretty bleak, everything was not as it seemed. And from this part of this passage, we can draw a principle spiritual discernment and understanding come from listening to God. Everything about Jesus' execution said that Rome had won the powers of evil had overcome, but Jesus' prayer and his command of everything that had happened so far said that this was Jesus being glorified. In what ways might that perspective transform what you and I are seeing in our own lives right now? So uh, let's continue reading on in the passage. John's showing us another really painful scene from Jesus's execution. Jesus was a common man, and he probably didn't have many clothes. So we can expect that the outer garments that the soldiers were cutting up, which would be uh, himatia in Greek or simla in Hebrew, they would have been woven and sewn by hand by one of the women in Jesus's life and were probably all of the simla, the outer garments, that he had in the whole world. Those soldiers would have taken their knives to the seams that that woman had taken hours to sew by firelight. And they turned those lovingly made garments to just anonymous pieces of material. But Jesus' inner garment, his keton in Greek, or ketonet in Hebrew, was special. And they couldn't cut it up without ruining it. We don't know exactly how Jesus' ketonet was made but we can guess that this wasn't usual because the soldiers had to come up with a way to share it out fairly. Because, you know, they're dividing up Jesus's other clothes at a matter, as a matter of course, right? This is normal. They're dividing up these possessions. They, when a criminal gets executed, they get to keep what he has. But Jesus is wearing a garment that's throwing a wrench in their proceedings. And we know that this is specifically as a way to fulfill prophecy. We see in Psalm 22:18. 18, They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's what he quoted in the passage. Now, it's tempting to consider that just a coincidence, right? But... We know, all right, Jesus probably didn't have more than those simla he was wearing, right? His outer garments. But the katonit, the inner garment, is a different story. That's the thing that would be next to his skin. It would be soaking up his sweat, right? Because he's wearing it all day. So Jesus is going to wear a new clean katanet every time he gets dressed. And so we know that this katanet, this inner garment, was specifically chosen by Jesus when he dressed the morning before the Last Supper. And we can imagine him, Jesus getting up in the morning and washing his face and his torso. He's thinking about what clothes he's going to wear that day. And he deliberately chose that particular katanit, that particular keton, knowing that its ultimate fate would be as the prize his
0: executioners gambled for at the foot of his cross. And so as that gambling is going at the foot of his cross, let's read what happens. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved... Standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now in Greek, the word translated woman was also the word for wife. And in English, we might think of it as Mrs. or Mistress. And so it was a word of respect that Jesus used to address his mother in public as a grown man. And consider how close their relationships were, Mary as his mother, but also one who had put her faith in Jesus as Messiah, and John who had leaned on his chest at the Last Supper. Jesus had already redefined the boundaries of God's household, which as the Son of God was also Jesus' household. He had told Nicodemus, All those born anew from above by the Spirit would enter the kingdom of God, and he had told his disciples there was to be no hierarchy of power in the kingdom, but rather a sense of equality, of familial love, and humble service. And out of Jesus' death would be birthed the church, and the beginning of the church was right here at the foot of Jesus' cross. The entirely new way of being as members of God's family And in God's household was symbolized in Jesus' mother and the beloved disciple living together and later praying and evangelizing together with the 120, Jesus' other close followers, as we see in Acts 1 and in Acts 2. Women and men side by side. And in this we see a a truth. Even in the midst of confusion and despair, God's actions are reasoned and deliberate. Some things were not going to make sense for a while, but John immediately trusted and accepted Jesus' words, as did Mary. Think how unusual that would have been. She had four other sons, but she moved in with John, and they acted on them. They surely found comfort in their shared experience at the cross, but also through Jesus' ministry and in what was about to come. And as they looked back, they surely saw the wisdom and the symbolism in what Jesus had done though at the time they may not have fully understood. Seeing their faith in action, you and I can also be encouraged as we process our life experiences in the light of prayer and in God's word, the scriptures. So as we come to the end
1: of our passage for today, we see one more thing. That Jesus has got to do before he can finally succumb to this horrible punishment that his body's been put under. Let's read it. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said in order to fulfill the scripture, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. So, We've got a theme here. As with the location of Golgotha, and the make of Jesus' special katanet, Jesus' drink here has kind of puzzled biblical scholars for centuries. Um, some people think that Jesus was offered vinegar here as kind of a cruel joke, right? A new way to make him suffer. Uh, but it's actually possible, uh, in fact, likely, that this was intended as a kindness rather than a punishment. Because we know from Mark, that Jesus was already offered a drink before he was nailed up on the cross. It says, And they offered him wine wicks with myrrh, but he did not take it. And if we look back, we can go to Proverbs 31, 6 to 7, and it's a custom taken from that verse in Proverbs uh, that's in the Midrash, which are Jewish commentaries on the scripture, that when a person is going to be executed, they're given a drink of good wine, and sometimes that wine will be mixed with myrrh, which actually acted as a painkiller. You see in this, this passage from Proverbs, it says, give strong drink to one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So, Based on this, it's possible that the high priests themselves, who are bound by those customs in the Midrash, and perhaps also mollifying some members like Nicodemus, who would certainly have protested Jesus' execution, they might have offered him this drink. Uh, We think maybe it came from Pilate, who was hoping to ease Jesus' pain after having beaten him so badly prior to his execution. And there's also some idea that uh, it might have been something a little stronger than just alcohol and myrrh, because As John mentions, there's another prophecy. This is, again, Psalm 69. It says, They gave me a bitter herb in my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And when we look at that word, the bitter herb, uh, it can mean poison, um, but it can also be interpreted as a desert poppy, which, again, an opiate, right? So we can even think that perhaps Jesus was offered an opiate, something really strong that could really erase his suffering. But the thing to remember is, whatever it was, Jesus didn't take it. Instead, this first drink, Jesus refuses to drink. He wants to be cogent during his execution, and he knows there is another drink in that prophecy that he needs to receive before he can finally die. So unlike the costly wine that was offered first, the good drink, when Jesus asks for a drink later on in his execution, he receives a cheap beverage, cheap vinegar. And to us, it kind of seems like a weird thing to drink, right, vinegar. But in fact, this is a common beverage at the time. It's called Posca. It's a mixture of vinegar and water. And sometimes it would have herbs or perfume like myrrh in it to sort of improve the taste. Um, and it's a considered sort of a healthy drink, but the upper classes really despised it. Uh, and it's so favored by Roman soldiers in particular that it's almost synonymous with them. So it's actually possible that there was a jar of posca there, not for the people being executed, but for the soldiers, who were very used to having to stand around in the hot sun all day waiting for someone to die because they've got to execute them. So from the outside, this looks like a really pitiful sight. Jesus' his body is horribly broken and abused. He's mewling for a drink and some soft-hearted, bystander soaks a sponge in the soldier's cool puska, trying to give him some relief. But John's words tell us that Jesus is not just mindlessly following the needs of his body. Even now, he's running the show. He's making sure that
0: every single prophecy about this hour had been fulfilled. And so we read, when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He had left many people unhealed, many more still demon-possessed, widows and orphans still hungered and lived on the margins of society, beggars still begged, and many more struggled just to get by. Roman rule still subjugated the Jewish people, Tax collectors still practiced their usury. Violence and crime were still a part of life. And there was nothing at all reformed about Jerusalem's religious practices. And yet, all that had been given to Jesus had been accomplished. God's mission and work were completed because all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus as Messiah, had been fulfilled. And all the scriptures that had predicted his death had now been satisfied. And the moment had come now for Jesus' final glorification, the sacrifice of his life for the sins of the world. And here we come to a truth that John wanted very much for us to see. Outwardly, Jesus was at the Romans' mercy but spiritually and in a much more real sense, Jesus was there of his own free will. All the apostles stood together in this teaching that outward circumstances do not determine inward reality or spiritual reality. The wrong and the bad and the evil may seem to have the upper hand in a particular situation or even overall, but that is never ultimately true with God. And it's not true for those who have put their faith in God through Christ. Jesus' death was going to open up the way to life and freedom and eternity. And so our question today is, what is God opening up for you and me through Jesus? So you guys remember John Newton,
1: our boy? We left him in a pretty bad spot. His ship is breaking up. It's a horrible storm off of the coast of Ireland. And he turns to God for the first time in years. He offers his life up to God. And he is not expecting um, to have to wait very long to see him after that. Uh, But instead of dying and being taken up into heaven, uh, he survives. He lived. Um, and after that kind of situation, you know, it would be easy for him to just sort of forget, like, I pray that it was a rough time for me, and I said some things that I didn't mean, right? I was staring death in the face. Uh, but John didn't turn his back on the prayer that he prayed. After that storm, he began to study God's word for the first time since he was a child. He abandoned his ways. He didn't drink anymore, no swearing, no gambling. Uh, and, you know, things didn't happen all at once. He still was working as a captain on a slave ship, but his time as a slave himself had changed him and his his conversion to Christianity had changed him even more. And so he began to sympathize with the people that he was helping to enslave. He started writing pamphlets and eventually became an abolitionist. He believed so strongly in that, that he left his career as a slave ship captain and he became a preacher instead. He actually was a lay preacher and then he was so insistent on becoming ordained that he was eventually ordained into the Church of England. And do you guys remember Mary, the woman who, in some ways, kind of started this whole mess? Who he was going to visit and then he got press-ganged instead? He never stopped loving Mary and he actually got to marry her. And so, just like that moment of Jesus' execution, the storm off of the coast of Ireland, it seemed like the end to John Newton. But by trusting in God, when he's passing through that valley of the shadow of death, it actually brought John to a fullness of life that he couldn't have imagined. So we have, uh, we put up the words to Amazing Grace uh, and we wouldn't be so cruel as to talk about John Newton and not sing that song. So let's have our music team, or at least some of the music team come up and sing that song together.
0: Ask you, O God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we come to know Jesus, so that with the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power for us who believe. According to the working of your great power, You, O God our Father, put this power to work in Christ when he was raised from the dead. And you seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And you have put all things under his feet and you have made him the head over all things For us, your church, which is your body, the fullness of Jesus, who fills all in all. Amen.